I don't feel like I really need the best technology in order to tell the best story. Story trumps technology, and actually, I think human relationships trump story. You know, the connection that you have with your subjects, I think it's even more important than even the story itself. Because you may have an idea of what the story should be, but that's actually never the story. <laughs> the story is actually what unfolds, you know, in front of the camera, what unfolds, you know, in your connection with your subject, and what unfolds before your eyes. And you can never plan that. So being aware of your story is good, but not to the detriment of your storytelling. Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And today, we'd like you to meet Kalyani Mom, a self-taught documentary filmmaker whose debut feature, A River Changes Course, won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2013. She's currently working on her next feature, which stems from a New York Times op-doc titled Fight for Orang Valley. Kalyani also shot and produced 2011 Academy Award-winning documentary, Inside Job. The music you'll hear in today's episode is by Anna and Elizabeth, a folk duo who aims to bring history and tradition into the contemporary world. Join us next week for episode 18.5 to hear their story. Elaine, what is that noise? There's a trumpet. There's a trumpet outside my door. <laughs> Do you hear it? It's crazy. I just walked out my door. Why don't you just tell everybody where you are? I'm in Colombia, Colombia the country. Beautiful place, but very noisy. So sorry for the extra trumpet. All right, Sarah. All right, <laughs> let's get started. Lord, I don't want to die in the storm. This year, 2015, marks 40 years since the Khmer Rouge regime took Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh and then took nearly two million lives in the following four years. Families were torn apart and forced to leave home. These occupied military sanctuaries all along the Cambodian frontier. I feel this war is a real genocide. Khmer are killing Khmer. The last year the regime was in power, 1979, is when Kalyani's family fled Cambodia. We actually tried to escape the Khmer Rouge 12 times unsuccessfully. When we finally did, you know, we crossed landmines and, you know, landfills and forests, and we slept, you know, on the forest floor, surrounded by, you know, jungle, until we finally reached the border of Cambodia and Thailand and um, was welcomed into a refugee camp. You know, even to this day, you know, the, the trauma of that period still remains, you know, with my family and myself. Sorry, this has to be so deep so quickly. <laughs> Lord, I don't wanna die in the storm. But what was that like? I mean, down, like, take us to the ground level and, like, mm -hmm. your memories. And... Yeah, I actually don't have much memory of that period because I was only, I was born in 1977 during the Khmer Rouge period. And when we escaped Cambodia in 1979, I was only two years old. But there is one memory Kalyani has from that time. It was at the refugee camp in Thailand, where her family spent two years. I remember like, um, playing in the rain during the monsoon season, you know, and playing in the mud and just being really happy. 
but I was small, you know, so I didn't really understand what was going on. But I know that for my older siblings and for my parents, it was really difficult, you know, and very traumatic, you know, to be stuck in no man's land, basically, not really belonging anywhere. I think about it a lot, actually, you know, about the concept of displacement, you know, and being uprooted from your from your home and your land and your motherland, basically, and not knowing where you really belong. And I haven't really kind of dealt with it for a long time until now, actually. Kaliani's parents worked hard to get out of the camp and to find their family a new home. And finally, after applying to several countries, they were accepted to come to the United States, to Houston, Texas. But I think my parents were really hopeful that even if, you know, their future was uncertain, at least for their children, you know, we would have an opportunity to get an education, you know, do something with our lives. And I think that's kind of what kept them going. They always encouraged us to study and study and study, maybe too much to the detriment of our social development. <laughs> like, for example, I only learned how to ride a bike two weeks ago. <laughs> Congratulations. So, thank you. I totally scraped my knee, but I love it. I love it because it's just, it makes me feel alive. You know the train I'm on. Kalyani does remember having fun when she was a kid, through books. She was a good kid, self-disciplined, she got good grades. But because she was number five out of seven children, she felt the freedom to follow her gut over any pressure to please her family. I did feel the sense of I wanted to leave home, you know, even more than my siblings. I wanted to leave and explore the world and see the world. Although I did see the world through, you know, through these books. I think that's how my perspective was so enlarged. So I always wanted to go as far away as possible. And I did go very far, 3,000 miles away from my family. But that experience there also showed me another difference, you know, that I was different from other people, especially at Yale. When my man goes to sea, he steps so high and free. I think I know as I watch him go that he has no need for me, for me. Kalyani got the full ride and got out into the world, but she couldn't get away from that looming feeling of uncertainty of where she belonged. I was very insecure about myself, you know, insecure about where I belong and who I belong with. He's dreaming of the foam. Why do I feel like I belong everywhere, but nowhere in particular? But why does everyone else seem to belong somewhere? And why, when I'm in class, I just, I, I can't, I, can, I can't even like string a sentence together and everyone else seems so certain about life. You know, when they answer questions, they're like, oh, they speak with so much, you know, authority. Why can't I speak with such authority, you know? And I always felt like I had more questions than answers, you know, about life, which is why I couldn't participate with such confidence. But then I felt like everyone else seemed to have more answers than questions. You know, I wondered, you know, why was I so different? You know, and, and then a lot of the people at Yale were all like, you know, children of legacy families who had been to private schools and knew each other. They already had the social connections, you know. So 
it was um yeah it was an uncomfortable time for me but uh i realized that that period was necessary and that no matter how i wished i belonged and no matter how i wish i was secure with myself or you know certain about life i'm glad i wasn't because it was my insecurity and also my questions that led me you know to ask more questions <laughs> you know and to to venture into unknown worlds and find answers and still i'm searching and i want to continue to search because i don't want to know the answers <laughs> you know i think once i know the answers the the journey is over on my back my powder it is dry i'm gone across the mountain Chrissy, don't you cry you know i think all of us go through this you know in our lives you know we're all kind of trying to understand who we are and i don't think you have to be displaced from a country to go through this you know searching for identity when she was young and people would ask what do you want to be when you grow up kalyani answered with an illustration it was a person with an easel painting an artist but as she got older and that question started to have a little bit more weight she changed her mind you know i thought oh no those things aren't don't have any you know relevance in society you know i want to do something that is helpful i want to do something that is you know i want to give to society and 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 become like a um, a meaningful member of society you know so then i wanted to become a professor i wanted to be a surgeon i wanted to be like maybe ceo of a company and then she thought Maybe I'll be a journalist or maybe a lawyer, which is actually the path she ended up pursuing. But all of these paths were straying from that original idea she had as a child to be an artist. And my heart when I was a child was true and honest to myself, you know, but as I grew older, I was straying away from that and I was moving beyond that and and being affected by society and social norms and, you know, what was expected of me or what I thought was expected of me. At Yale, Kalyani did get involved with groups and studies related to Cambodia. In 1998, she returned to the country for the first time since escaping with her family. She got an internship with the Documentation Center of Cambodia and researched the Cambodian family under the Khmer Rouge regime. And after college, she returned to Cambodia to do research on crimes committed against women during the Khmer Rouge. You better get your house in order. Kalyana decided to get her law degree at UCLA. She focused on immigration and refugee law. During and after law school, she traveled all over the world, assisting immigrants who were struggling to relocate and find a home. She worked for the Ministry of Justice in Iraq, and while there, secretly interviewed her colleagues about their experiences under Saddam Hussein's regime, a time when millions of Iraqis were removed from their homes and were left with no other option but to make new homes in neighboring countries. This was meaningful work to Kalyani, but after six months, she hit a wall. You know, I can't do this anymore. I'm really glad I'm in Iraq right now, and this moment is really helping me to understand what's important to me. But I can't respond to the urgency of the situation with the law. My heart was with art and the freedom to express oneself. You know, and the law was so compact. You know, and such so boxed up and packaged. and prepared i didn't feel like i had room to maneuver you know within that context and so i thought 
you know, I need to tell this story. You know, I'm here, I have some Iraqi friends, you know, I have some connection. This is also a story that I'm familiar with, you know, because my family and I went through it. Why can't I tell this story? I never intended to become a filmmaker <laughs> at all. It never occurred to me like, oh, Kalyani, you don't know how to use a camera. <laughs> you don't know how to tell a story. You don't know how to do anything related to documentary filmmaking. You know, why are you doing this? In 2009, Kalyani completed her first film, Between Earth and Sky, a short documentary about the lives of three young Iraqi refugees seeking to find hope in the midst of turmoil through art. Telling the stories of others made Kalyani think about her own story, her family's story, one that she hadn't asked a lot about. I wondered why, you know, I kind of ignored that, you know, why, why I didn't want to tell my family's story. I said, you know, the time isn't right. And I think it wasn't, you know, it wasn't yet right for me. I wanted to learn about the context first. I wanted to, you know, understand how this period affected other people, you know, other families. But never once did I go home and ask my parents, mom, dad, tell me the story, tell me, you know, what happened. And I, I, I don't think I really knew at that time. But I think I was just scared. I was scared to, to find out what the stories were. Sometimes it's easier to look outside yourself than it is to look inside yourself. Kalyani hasn't made a film telling her family's specific story, but she is making films that tell the stories of today's Cambodia, and through those, coming to know the country and the people for herself. Your work is so, I don't, I don't like to use the word intimate when I talk about media, but it's used a lot. And it's so, it sits with you. It's like really beautiful, allows you to observe. It doesn't, it's not heavy handed. And it feels like someone who really loves this place is there documenting it. It doesn't feel like someone's dropping in, you know, it feels like an investment. And I'm always curious about um, I guess the portrayals of places from an outsider, insider point of view. And I'm curious how you felt the media had represented the Cambodian people before mm-hmm. you went mm-hmm. in. And if you had any, if you had done your research and saw this and was really trying to get across a different image, or if, if I'm just making that up in my head. I've been really frustrated, you know, in my work in Cambodia. I mean, I, you know, I traveled all over the country, you know, met people, met families, heard their stories, documented their stories. And all the stories were so rich, you know, so beautiful. And not just the stories, but the place, you know, and the people and the food, <laughs> you know, and the culture and the music and the the texture, you know, of the, the scarves, you know, of the materials, the, the fragrance of the flowers. You know, the, the clouds that pass, you know, in the sky, it's just all so different, you know, from what I've ever seen in my life. And I never feel like that's conveyed, those textures, those, that complexity, because I think media is very straightforward. You know, we want to get to the facts, we want to get to the story, and we want to get it to it quickly 
And also media has bias, you know, has judgments, has a, an objective. Um, but I don't think life has objective. And life is not objective. It's just experiences. You know, the stories that I wanted to tell, I wanted to portray that complexity. You know, it's always about, you know, the horrors of the Khmer Rouge, you know, the terror of that time, about the millions of people who were killed, you know, the, um, the pr- imprisonment, the torture. And yes, though, that story is important. You know, even when we began this interview, I began the story with my family's displacement and with the horror and with the terror and the trauma. However, that's the contextual background to something greater, even greater than that. And, you know, what Cambodia is going through now, you know, is a is an upheaval, a upheaval of, you know, identity, of upheaval of culture, upheaval of the environment. You know, those stories, you know, need to be documented as well. And that that history and that context needs to be remembered, never forgotten. But I think we also need to express other things that are happening in Cambodia now. And that's what I want to do. Where the wild blooming flowers are their odors emitting And the leaves on the boughs on the breezes are flitting And although her films are about development, globalization, deforestation, migration, the changes that are happening in Cambodia today, they are also about people, stories of people, their emotions, their hopes, their love. A River Changes Course is Kalyani's first feature documentary. It's a film that follows three Cambodian families and how their traditional way of life is being challenged by modern developments. The film is breathtakingly beautiful and almost completely observational as we live with each character. Sari is a young fisherman, uncertain of his family's future. Q is a rice harvester who's preparing to leave her village and work in a garment factory. And then there's Sav, whose family's orchards are being threatened by large companies rapidly slashing and clearing forests. A River Changes Course won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2013. Fight for a Rain Valley is Kalyani's short documentary. It's a David and Goliath battle between the Zhang people, an indigenous group that's been living in this remote valley for six centuries, and the government, who intends on building 17 dams throughout Cambodia, one of which is the Orang Dam. Despite the effects of flooding, displacement, and the threat to the valley's rich habitats, the government plans to move forward with this construction. This short was featured in the New York Times Opdoc section in 2014. Kalyani approaches film the way she generally approaches life. Instead of selecting from a dozen stories, she follows through on a special connection and she commits. She goes with those visceral gut feelings. She believes if you commit to a relationship, the relationship will give back to you. These friendships that she's fostered have helped her better understand herself and where she belongs. 
And the way that they looked at the world, you know, their outlook on life was so rooted, you know, really literally rooted and grounded because they were so connected to nature. They had no barriers, no walls, you know, nothing that, no insecurities. You know, I think a lot of us have insecurities in the Western world, you know, because we're all trying to make it or, you know, achieve something, accomplish something. We have this like chip on our shoulders constantly, you know, but for them, they had no ambition at all. They just lived life, you know, simply with nature. And when I saw that, I realized, you know, I understand now why I've been so distressed, you know, like I didn't grow up with this rootedness. But for them, you know, they, they, ha they know where they belong. They have an understanding of their culture, understanding of their traditions, understanding of their ancestry and their heritage and their past. And I realized that actually, even before meeting them, I have been searching for that rootedness in nature myself. love to hike and <laughs> be outdoors. My partner and I live out in the country, you know, underneath tall redwood trees, you know, thousands of year old redwood trees. And I love, you know, foraging for mushrooms and, <laughs> you know, eating, um, you know, vegetables from the local farms. And so I feel like I'm actually finding my grounding again, you know, literally <laughs> in nature. The idea of home, maybe it's not in you know, a physical space, but actually it's in a, a sense of belonging, you know, to nature anywhere in the world. One day while filming a meeting between a monk and the Zhang community, Kalyani noticed a woman breastfeeding a baby, and she was immediately drawn to her. Moments later, Kalyani overheard her say to a neighbor, I really wish someone would come and tell our story. Oh my God, did she just say that? Did she mean for me to hear that? I tried to remain calm and collected, but after the meeting, I ran to her and I said, I will tell your story. <laughs> and she was like, oh, really? Um, and I said, what are you doing tomorrow? Can I, can I follow you? What are you doing tomorrow? She's like, well, we're gonna go fishing. She's like, I'm there, I, I can be there right there tomorrow morning. What time, what time? <laughs> there was a woman lived in the dark At first, the woman was hesitant, wondering why and who and what Kalyani was up to. Yes, they were both Cambodian, but it was as if Kalyani was from another world. But their common values and interests became apparent, and this initial connection quickly turned into a deep friendship. And this woman and her family are now the subjects of Kalyani's current feature film. And it's really strange, you know, there are times when I feel like I don't even have to express anything to her in words, and she understands what I want and what how I feel. And I never felt that before, you know? You know, especially not with someone in Cambodia. And so when I started filming her and her husband and her family, I felt like because I became so connected to her and to them, that I wasn't just filming them. I was actually experiencing this with them. And the story that was being told 
was not a story that I was telling, but a story that we were telling together. And that is such an incredible feeling when you can get to that place where it's a collaboration, you know, between you and your subject and not just you with the objective camera, you know, documenting a story. I felt like with A River Changes Course, I was really um, in tune with my movements and with the camera and that the camera was like an extension of my body, you know, an extension of my perception. In this situation, I feel like the camera doesn't even exist and that they are an extension of my body and of my perception and that we are, you know, telling this story together. And it's so it's like when I think about it, it gives me chills, you know, to to believe that I could actually be in that kind of place. And it doesn't, I realize that the camera doesn't even matter. Down by the Greenwood side, when there's a challenge in front of you, how do you approach that? Like something like a technical problem? Because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes people don't do things because they're scared of the tools. Yes. And so it stops you from actually doing it. Mm-hmm. How did you learn? Yeah, <laughs> learn. And like, did you just start? Was it kind of rough at first? Oh my God. I mean... There's a lot of challenges. There still are challenges. And um, well, I when I went into it, I'd never held a video camera in my life, but I did begin to become really fascinated by photography. In her time overseas after college in Mozambique and Iraq, Kalyani took some photography lessons. She got comfortable with the act of capturing an image with composition, using an old film camera and a digital point and shoot called the Elf. You guys remember the Elf, right? Spelled E-L-P-H. I had one. But when I picked up the video camera, I just had to read the manual. And I had to just, you know, try it out. And it was really scary. It was so scary. I was so nervous all the time. And I'm not a technical person at all. Like, I do not like to read manuals. And I feel scared, you know, when I handle something technical. But uh, I realized that I just needed to breathe, you know, and calm down and not worry so much about the technical. And it was always when I felt like I was in a flow, you know, and just filming and just capturing the moment that actually things turned out really well. But when I was aware of the technical stuff and I was aware of myself and like, and I was really frustrated because I couldn't get the right composition, you know, that I wanted. That's when things failed. And that's when things fell apart. And it happens, it happens all the time. You know, like even when I'm riding the bike, <laughs> I fell down. I would fall down because that when I'm riding and riding, it's just smooth sailing. As soon as I think about it and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm riding this bike. <laughs> How am I maintaining balance? Oh my God, how am I going to stop? As soon as I think that, I fall. <laughs> oh my God. You know? I love that you're just learning to ride a bike. It, it makes me so happy. <laughs> I can't swim. I can't swim either. Really? Mm-mm. I mean, yeah. I can swim underwater and be fine. I can fine. swim underwater too. Yeah. <laughs> and I just recently got certified in scuba diving and I was scared to death because I can't swim. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. So I can scuba dive. Yeah.
If you haven't taken a moment to witness Kalyani's beautiful cinematography, you should. And then you gearheads will probably wonder what she shoots with. On a River Changes course, made in 2013, she used a Canon 5D Mark II on a monopod, and she used the camera strap around her neck to create tension, allowing for smooth movement and panning. For sound, a Tascam external audio recorder. She was a one-woman band out in the field. And she still is. Now in her current feature, she's shooting with the tiny but powerful Sony A7S and keeps it super simple with two prime lenses, a 35 and a 50 millimeter, and she records audio on the Zoom H6. That's what I'm using right now. Working from sun to sun, spend my money when the work is done. Kalyani lives a simple life, so she can travel to Cambodia and make her work. She lives outside of San Francisco where rent is cheap, she doesn't have a car, she doesn't own a TV or the newest iPhone, and she applies for grants, and sometimes friends even help her out to purchase what she needs to make the film. And of course, there are student loans. But she makes do, because this is what she wants to do. So those are the, the, you know, the decisions that I made in my life. And I think many of us as documentary filmmakers and as artists have made that decision in our lives you know, to pursue our passion. However, I do believe that you know, as artists, we, we do contribute a lot to society. And I do wish and, and believe that our society should value our work more. We should be making as much as, you know, the politicians and lobbyists in Washington, D.C. <laughs> you know, we should be making as much as um, an investment banker or a doctor or, I mean, I think our contribution to society is, 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 is tremendous as artists. You know, not just documentary filmmakers, but all artists, because we contribute to not just a body of knowledge, but a body of perception. And that perception is really important because where we go and where we are headed, I think, depends on the stories we tell ourselves. And if our stories are fraught with materialism, consumerism, consumption, you know, and exploitation of our natural resources and people, then that's the future that we leave our grandchildren. But if our stories are filled with hope, and love and compassion for others and the protection of our natural environment and the protection of our culture and our heritage, then the future could be very different for us. So I think society depends on us as artists, you know, to tell those stories. And if we don't tell those stories and if we are silenced, then only certain people with privilege and power are able to tell their stories and are able to perpetuate the current system that we actually live under, which I believe is fraught, you know, with fallacies. In a long time traveling here below, been a long time traveling away from my home. Been a long time traveling here below to lay this body down. And how would you say that young version of you 
is different than the version of you today, or maybe similar?、Mm. So I think today I'm actually more like how I was when I was in the first grade. When I drew that picture, you know, of of this artist, you know, with the easel and the canvas, you know, painting, I think that was my. Maybe not my true self, but but definitely the self that I feel closest to. So I think I am more like I was when I was in the first grade, and second grade, and third grade than I am than I was when I was in law school, <laughs> or even when I was in college.、Um, you know, because I had a lot of confidence as a child. I don't even call it confidence. I think it's just a knowing and a comfort. With what you feel passionate about, you know, when you really love what you're doing, when you really care about what you're doing, you don't even have to exert confidence. It's just who you are. You know, it's just being. But when you're not sure of who you are and where you belong and 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 what your, you know, your path is. Sometimes you impose confidence on yourself, which becomes very artificial. And I see that in people, and it's not confidence, but arrogance. I think when you're really truly at ease with yourself, there's a lot of comfort and humility, and compassion for others who may not be as comfortable as you are. Thank you to Kalyani for taking the time to have this memorable conversation with us. What you're saying is、mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I'm gonna cry too. <laughs> We always cry. I know. And thanks to Jason Headley who allowed us to do this conversation in his attic. Visit our website shedoespodcast.com to find out how you can see Kalyani's films. This show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network, and this episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon, and sound designed by Billy Wiraznik. The music you heard in today's episode is by Anna and Elizabeth. Be sure to join us next week to learn a little bit more about them, their music, and their process. Wondering how you can help us out? Well, we love hearing from you and finding out what you like about the show and what you'd like to hear. So if you haven't yet, go over to iTunes and let us know what you think. It helps others find us, and it keeps us afloat. Or you can make a donation to She Does on our website. Whatever you choose, we're happy and grateful to have you here with us. Thanks for listening to She Does. You hear the whistle blow.